The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to The Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Hi, I'm your host, Catherine Zox. Welcome to The Catherine Zox Show. I'm your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is Dr. Joel Young, author of When Your Adult Child Breaks Your Heart. Dr. Young is the medical director and founder of the Rochester Center for Behavioral Medicine. Uh, Dr. Young has, um, well, his book is When Your Adult Child Breaks Your Heart, and the second part of that book is uh, Coping with Mental Illness, Substance Abuse, and the Problems that Tear Families Apart. Uh, Dr. Young is a board-certified adolescent, adult, and forensic psychiatrist, uh, as uh, well as the medical director of the Rochester Center for Behavioral Medicine in Michigan, uh, where uh, they do clinical research. It is a cr- clinical research site, an outpatient clinic specializing in the treatment of families struggling with mental illness. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Dr. Young. Well, thank you for inviting me, Catherine. Yeah, it's great to have you here. Uh, you know, the topic and your area of expertise, of course, is, is very timely. Uh, now, many of us, are in, or the public, I guess, are constantly asking this question, how responsible are parents for some of the heinous crimes committed by their adult children? Of course, in the news is Adam Lanza, who, uh, because this is the anniversary of the December 14th uh, shooting in, in, in Newtown, and uh, I think, you know, when you have an adult child with mental illness, and I have unfortunately many friends and families who do, they are in a position of sort of feeling like their hands are tied in terms of helping that adult child, but when something goes terribly wrong, like with Adam Lanza, they get the blame for it. So I think that's, you know, the topic of our conversation today because you are the expert. Um, There's a lot of uh, issues, difficulties surrounding helping or coping with a child, uh, an adult child who has mental illness. Yeah, absolutely. It, it, it is a paradox at times because uh, adult children, of course, are autonomous. They have their rights, and our society ensures that. And parents have a limited degree of control over not only their minor children, but they have much less control over their children who are over 18. And rarely can they uh, absolutely enforce the need for adequate mental health treatment, which includes diagnosis and treatment. And, uh, and yet when these tragedies occur, more times than not, um, when you peel the onion and analyze the perpetrator, Often there's a history, not always, a history of mental illness, substance use disorder, some type of pervasive developmental disorder, and um, as was the case with Adam Lanza. And I well, think it's natural to, 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 to blame somebody. Often the parents get the blame. Often they don't deserve it entirely. 
Well, if they don't deserve it, what do we do? And I, I think I'd, I'd give you some examples of, I have at least two friends who have children who are now adult children who are bipolar. And the onset of this, of their bipolar, the manifestation of kind of all the symptoms of bipolar happened in high school. Um, but, you know, some of those symptoms, you know, the acting out behavior that normal kids do in high school, that maybe their kids' behavior was a little more exaggerated, but not to the point where you, one would necessarily do something about. But that was kind of like the beginnings, and it's gone downhill from there, from drugs, alcohol, uh, even being incarcerated, uh, and, and yet they feel like their hands are tied. So where do you start? What do you do? I mean, what does well, a parent do? Yes. So mental illness, I think, is in many ways like physical illness. They, it, um, for instance, uh, you know, juvenile diabetes starts um, early in life and it persists. And most mental illnesses, depression, bipolar disorder, ADHD, uh, are evident uh, early in life, but they don't go away. There's not that social contract that you get your high school diploma and give them back your ADHD or bipolar disorder. It does persist. So part of the job is for therapists and psychiatrists and psychologists and social workers to, when they're working with younger children, to inform the family and the patient that this is probably part of their life. This is probably something they're going to have to deal with, much like um, uh, the same lecture that a diabetic will have, that your bipolar disorder, your, your diabetes is with you and will be unfortunately with you for your remaining days. It's not your fault, but it's your responsibility to take care of it. In the cases that you mentioned, Catherine, uh, kids who demonstrate or declare their bipolar disorder in high school, the same holds true. Um, it's, it's really incumbent on the family to arrange um, for treatment and educate the child that even when they turn 18, they're going to have to be responsible for this. The problem with mental illness is sometimes with the symptoms of mental illness, particularly bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, etc., the person who has the condition doesn't really see the problem. It takes, takes someone else in the family to see it. So part of the cruelty of mental illness is the person suffering from mental illness lacks insight and sometimes doesn't see the need for treatment. Doesn't see the need for treatment. And then when you get involved in, and, and uh, as again, I'm thinking of like these personal instances that I can give you, they, the kids go, maybe they're, and in this case, uh, two of them very bright young men and went to college, even one was able to graduate from a graduate school, but of course never, I'm talking about bipolar, never be able to hold a job, uh, then begins to take drugs and then is already 20, you know, 23, 24 years old. How can the parents step in then? I mean, what can they do? Well, I, I would say in that very sad and bleak, and all too common situation. The, the, the bright side is most of the patients I encounter will uh, acquiesce to treatment. They've developed a relationship um, with a, a mental health provider, and um, the relationship exists through thick and thin. Unfortunately, there's a large number um, where the work hasn't been done before, uh, a relationship hasn't been established, so when there is a crisis, um, there's really no one to turn to. And um, I think that that's 
quite key. And, and, and I have to say, on a national level, I think we're identifying this better. I think part of the uh, Affordable Health Care Act is trying to ensure that people get health care, mental health care. And I think there's been a general a movement, say, in the Veterans Administration to really emphasize mental health care. We're not where we need to be, but I think the country has in the past 10 or 15 years recognized that if we can treat these kids in the mental health system, it's much better than treating them in the criminal justice system. Yeah, I agree, and I think part of that is uh, removing the stigma of mental illness, and maybe the Affordable Health Care Act will do that because it's a requirement that uh, that has to be covered under insurance, which I think, in, in my opinion, is a good thing. So uh, I think we have to go back with that stigma because you're talking about being able to identify the symptoms of mental illness early and parents getting involved. But first, there has to you can, the stigma has to be removed because you don't want to talk about the fact or even even address teachers or counselors at school that your child has a mental illness because that sets them apart uh, and not in a good way. So I think that's an issue you have to wrestle with as well. You know, I, I find that stigma to be a, a major issue, a persistent issue, um, but um, I share a, a little bit of your enthusiasm or optimism, Catherine, that it, the stigma might be slowly breaking down. You know, we live in a transparent world. We live in a world of social media. People, you know, um, uh, expose it all. Celebrities are talking about some of their mental health challenges. Um, and what I have found is that uh, when parents and children are suffering and so they reach out and someone reaches back and can demonstrate helpfulness, um, then they become more engaged and more content. I think the one thing about the mental health system, usually the, you know, the, the psychiatric uh, medications that we have available and the various therapies that go in tandem with them, and I think that that's a key approach. And one of the things that we talk about in, in uh, our book, When Your Adult Child Breaks Your Heart, is the importance of a team approach when treating mental illness. And I think this, we break it down into three realms that when people develop mental illness, and by that we mean depression or ADHD or schizophrenia or substance use disorder, that usually the best approaches are um, making a really good diagnosis. And then once you make a diagnosis, using often medications, not always, but often medications of some sort, and along with that, some types of uh, therapies, uh, psychotherapies. And it's, it's uh, Dr. Young, you're talking about the team approach that you, you talk about in your book. Uh, let's get specific with that because I think that's really important. Let's, let, and give us an example. Let's give an example of, of a family who's confronted with a, a child, and uh, I, I don't know at what age, let's say even in middle school, um, who is depressed or either seems to be exhibiting symptoms of bipolar, uh, what, what, what's the first, where do you start? What do you do? Well, uh, I'll tell you how we've done it uh, at, at my clinic and uh, um, what, which has been an evolutionary process uh, over the 20 years that we've been working together as a team. Uh, this is a team of psychiatrists and psychologists and nurse practitioners and social workers, um, counselors, etc. And um, often... Uh, the phone rings. It's, it's amazing how much need there is out there, sometimes more need that, than there seems to be ability to provide it. Um, and uh, a, a parent might have been 
told by the school that there's something uh, difficult with their child. They might be acting out. They might not be doing well academically. As you say, Catherine, there's um, always apprehension at first about going to seek mental health care. What we try and do in our office is have the first contact being with um, one of our psychologists or social workers. They're kind. They're nice. They're not judgmental. I think they're able to develop rapport with the family. Um, then we often discuss it as a team. Um, by, by that time, you know, the initial contact has been positive. The family feels less intimidated by, by getting treatment. And then we'll uh, often get some testing done, psychological testing, which involves um, you know, asking the family and the patient, the child, about um, their mood, their anxiety. We assess how they process information. We assess their personality. All of, the, all of this is done with um, standardized tests and, and really kind and gentle um, uh, diagnosticians. And then often I will get involved as a psychiatrist and uh, you know, get the input from my team and um, make a determination, develop a, a rapport with the child and the family, and often we'll make a suggestion about medications. At the same time, we have the child seeing a therapist, um, um, working less from a, a biological perspective and more from a supportive um, perspective, um, helping the family, um, helping the child in school, helping uh, obtain accommodations in school. So we really try and do this over time, develop a team approach, uh, because you, you know the, the, almost all the issues we deal with are long-term issues. They're not um, short, discrete issues, but they go on. And, and in that situation, over a long term, it's nice to have a team so that someone is always available. Over yeah, the and the team approach, you're talking about the team approach, obviously, in terms of treatment. What about right. at home, like because you're taking a child... Uh, who's obviously in an environment, could be any kind of, it might be a single mother with two kids, it might be a family with lots of siblings. Do you involve the rest of the family in the treatment as well? We do, and we encourage that. And um, so a few observations we've made along the way. Um, so often, 80 to 90% of the time, it's the mother that takes the lead. Um, moms seem to engage the healthcare system almost um, um, instinctively. They, they, they work with doctors. They know how to reach out and get care. But other members, of the, and sometimes fathers, but often we see the moms take the lead. Um, and uh, there's sometimes a little bit more resistance from other parts of the family, but we will try and, um, and engage in, in family therapy and bring them in uh, in sessions and educate uh, the family. I, I think when when there's difficulties at home, a good example is a child who's struggling with ADHD. Um, there might be some impulsive behavior. Uh, children will act before they think. They might have temper tantrums. This is really difficult in a six-year-old, but very difficult in an 18-year-old. Um, and um, and it's very easy to get mad at the child, angry and resentful. And with education. Um, psychoeducation, we call it, education about their psychological problem. Um, I think families become more understanding. Um, uh, they will encourage the treatment um, because they often see the treatment works. And I think that's the, the point I want to make from these various uh, disciplines. Um, mental health treatment really does work. 
uh, it helps, sometimes very dramatically, sometimes moderately. But it, it's rare that a patient doesn't get some better. With so they see some treatment. modicum of success, at least, is what you're saying, and, and it relieves some of the pressure on the family when you have this acting out child or adolescent, and so they want to continue with the treatment. I have a question, and I've been asked this many times. Do you, is there an increase in mental illness among our children, our, our adolescents, or is it we're more aware of the behavior or we have a better way of diagnosing it, or is there actually an increase in mental illness, um, obviously in your opinion, in terms of, uh, of, our, of, our, of our kids? Well, I, I think that there probably is not a big change in the amount of mental illness um, I don't think biology changes that much from generation to generation. Most of these are biological conditions. I think we're far more effective at identifying um, mental illness than we were even a generation ago and far more than we were 50 years ago. Um, so I think that, that the rates of mental illness probably have been rather persistent. I just think we're far more attuned to it. But they're high rates. 17% of Americans will have a depressive episode sometime in their life. Uh, we think about 9% of children and adolescents will have ADHD. 1% of the population has schizophrenia. 2% of the population has bipolar disorder. These are large numbers. Um, and unlike other illnesses, uh, these mental illnesses affect family members significantly. And they affect society, and they affect schoolmates. So they, they're, not, they're noisy. When people have mental illness, it affects other people. And uh, I think as a society, we've become more attuned to it. We've needed to become more attuned to it. But I'm not quite convinced that the rates are necessarily higher. Our awareness is better. So our awareness is better, and so, well, obviously, being able to be aware of this, and we need to do something with it. Let's take specific, specific cases, because we mentioned in the beginning of the show the Adam Lanza case. I mean, yeah. how did Adam Lanza go wrong? Was there anything? You know, we, are blame, we tend to blame, as a society, his mother. She could have done yeah. something. She was an enabler. She allowed, there was a gun in the house, all of those kinds of things. What do you see perhaps could have been done differently well, I think to prevent I the killing of a dozen people? Yeah. Well, I have mixed feelings about um, about this situation. On one hand, um, unequivocally, she made um, a terrible mistake, and that is allowing uh, guns and access uh, her, her her son to have access to guns. Um, however, anyone feels about um, our country's history with regard to gun control, um, I, I think it's safe to say that mental illness and um, easy access to guns do not mix. And it's hard from any political perspective to, to feel otherwise, in, in my estimation. And so um, her absolute um, impossible situation was, was having guns in, in that house. On the other hand, um, I can't imagine any parent uh, conceptualizing that their child would go in, uh, even their troubled child would go in and, and murder innocent first graders and their teachers. It's, uh, it's a, such a heinous crime that it's almost unimaginable. And, um, and, and until we heard this as a nation, it was hard to fathom that um, 
these ch- children of, of this age could, could be a target of anybody. Um, I'm sympathetic to her to the extent that uh, Adam Lanza obviously was a troubled child. Now, I never um, examined him, but I've read the reports. He sounds like he um, um, what, had uh, severe um, autism spectrum disorder. He uh, probably had some psychosis. She was alone. She, uh, her, Adam's father was not there. I think he somehow materially supported the household, but he was not there. And I think she spent pretty much her day and night trying to care for her son, as as parents do. And um, but, well, can we? I just want to um, yeah. kind of interrupt here because you know you look at this family this is a middle upper middle class family and one would think ha- even though sh- the father wasn't there that often or uh wasn't always present and she was the one who was primarily responsible for Adam it's you look at this family you say well this is a middle class upper middle class family they had access to all the resources um she wasn't struggling monetarily there were a lot of issues that she didn't have to deal with so so what happened i mean did she have some kind of mental illness herself um you know why wasn't she able to access help or yes you know i think we'll never know that and um and it 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 does not seem that the mental health treatment was um was a, was provided, and where that breakdown occurred, um, it, it 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 clearly occurred. We we get the impression that M. Lanza was quite isolative and refused to uh, engage, and uh, we we don't know um, if she made an ultimatum um, that he get treatment. Perhaps that's what triggered this rage. We we will never know. Um, we can't forget that she was the first, first victim of his um, killing spree. So we, we will never know exactly what happened. What um, was the responsibility of the school in well, this case? I mean, the responsibility of the school in terms of Adam Lanza and making some kind of being aware of whatever his mental state was and perhaps being uh, you know, alert to that. So, and, and not just he, but... The Adam, you know, the others that have occurred these kinds of heinous crimes that have, in the past two years that we've been, you know, the killing in the Aurora at the movie theater, Columbine, all of those. Does the school have to take a responsibility? Yeah, uh, I, I think uh, we give mixed messages. Um, for instance, um, we we want to protect everyone's rights. I think that uh, recent stories. Uh, in the news about um, government's involvement in individuals' lives have led people to believe that we really don't want the government um, micromanaging and demanding. Um, um, and, and, and then you have situations where children will uh, demonstrate mental illness, and what is the responsibility of the schools? Um, can they demand treatment, and are we comfortable with that? And I think that that becomes part of the larger political debate. On top of that, uh, let's hypothetically say that the schools uh, should uh, enforce um, treatment. We really don't have the resources. Like one of the largest shortages of physicians in this country are child psychiatrists. There are there are few and far between. Why why is that? Uh, well, it's a systemic problem. We haven't produced enough psychiatrists, child psychiatrists. They're, um, 
there is just a shortage. There's shortages in big cities like New York and Albany and, and, and Boston and Ann Arbor. Um, uh, and, the, and, and those are, are areas where actually child psychiatrists are trained. But if you go to uh, more rural parts of the country, less populated cities, um, there are shortages. And um, I, I think that that needs to be addressed. Um, yeah, I'm curious because I know that there are some of the well, it's specialties that we have shortages in in terms of you know uh, medicine, like primary care physicians who are going to be the keystone or the cornerstone of the uh, Affordable Health Care Act. That's an issue because we have so few of them. You know, maybe because they don't make enough money, or they're you know they've attributed a lot of reasons to that. So I'm really curious, why don't medical students or residents, why don't they go into child psychiatry? I mean, is there a reason for that? Yeah, uh, I think uh, there's a, you know, it's a a different issue, but I think that um, there's probably as much stigma about doctors going into mental illness treatment as it is for patients. I think sometimes medical students view their role as catching babies and, um, and, you know, doing eye surgery and reading CAT scans. And, um, and those are the fields that are attracting a, a lot of medical students. They tend to be the more lucrative fields and, and maybe better lifestyles. And, and, and primary care and psychiatry seems not to be getting the numbers that we need. Um, and and it's, it's a problem that, that needs to be addressed. Uh, I'll give you an example just uh, today, I uh, heard a report on National Public Radio how uh, a number of veterans are coming back from um, Afghanistan and Iraq, and uh, high numbers of them are, are, are having troubles with adjustment, usually due to post-traumatic stress disorder, and very high rates of incarceration um, in the first year or so when they come back. Uh, and what some courts are doing is engaging the Veterans Administration system and diverting them from jail, but in demanding that they get treatment from the VA. The VA has actually one of the most elaborate systems to, to, to handle um, the mental health care needs of veterans. Um, if, if the rest of us and the civilian population and the school population could replicate that system where there are mental health clinics available, access, insurance companies pay for them, then I think we'll do a lot better and we'll have far fewer of these terrible incidents. Our hope, quite frankly, is mental health treatment, making it available, decreasing the stigma. Um, I, I don't see any other way around it. Uh, we're a mature population. Um, these are good times for the United States, um, and um, we, we, we need to become more sophisticated in our health care system. And, yeah, and that involves, as you said, I think from the very beginning, it's not just physical health, but it's mental health has to take the same priority as physical health. Well, and there, and there, I, you know, I sort of take this integrative approach. I mean, there's mm-hmm. the mind body thing; it's all together. But if we're going to if we're going to be proponents of, we need more resources. Then the resources have to be there. You have to have the child psychiatrist. You have to have the kind of cutting edge kinds of treatments that we need for these the troubled kids, adolescents. Um, Otherwise, we're kind of just talking, but we really don't have the resources to implement it or execute it. Right, and that's one reason why uh, we wrote this book, When Your Adult Child Breaks Your Heart, because we felt that there were a lot of families in need, families of kids, families, particularly in this book, we focused on families of adult children, and we, we 
emphasize, you know, the importance of getting a good diagnosis because when your child is acting out and having difficulties, you want to understand it. That's where diagnosis is so key, and diagnosis drives treatment. And, um, and with treatment, people can get better. And what we try and do in the book is guide people through the system, try and help them identify um, good providers and good systems, and help them understand their child's uh, illness. We wrote it so that um, uh, talking about particular cases where we've actually protected the true identities of, of uh, patients, but uh, what's more important were their stories, their struggles uh, with their children, with children who um, are struggling with substance abuse and alcohol and ADHD and psychosis and trying to give it uh, an organizing approach, an organized approach so families can, can understand this. Yeah, what I'd like to do, if you can come back with us, I want, we have to take a break, but I'd really be interested in, you know, I'd like to be more specific about your book, um, When Your Adult Child Breaks Your Heart, Coping with Mental Illness, Substance Abuse, and the Problems That Tear Families Apart, because I like specific examples, and you just said that, you know, there are several uh, very specific examples in the book, because I think people can relate to that. Uh, you know, we've discussed the overall problem, but let's really talk about what actually happens within families. I think it's really important to get that out there. I think it is, too. I think it is really important to discuss these issues. So we will take a short break. I'm your social worker with the microphone, Catherine Zox, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. My guest this morning is Dr. Joel Young, as I said, author of When Your Adult Child Breaks Your Heart. Uh, don't go away. We'll be back shortly. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash World Talk Radio or search for the keywords World Talk Radio. Once you're a part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the World Talk Radio network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash World Talk Radio or search for World Talk Radio. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. Welcome back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Well, joining me this morning is my second guest, Lonnie Hall-Albert, born and raised in Chicago, a professional vocalist and lyricist at 19, traveled the world as lead singer with Sergio Mendes and Brazil 66. Uh, she recorded 12 albums in English, Spanish, and Portuguese. She, in 1985, she won a Grammy Award for her Latin CD, Es Facil Amar, and she continues to record with her husband, the legendary Herb Albert. Today we're going to be talking about Lonnie's book, her first book, Emotional Memoirs and Short Stories. Welcome to the show, Lonnie. Nice to have you on this morning. 
Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here, Catherine. It's, it is a pleasure to have you. Emotional memoirs and short stories, because I'm always interested in women's stories, and so that's what this book obviously is about. Yeah. Uh, the deep, well, described as the, what, the per, deep, deep, digging deeply into the inner lives of women and artists. Um, it's an urban anthology, um, investigating that fine line between creative fact and personal fiction. So, um, I guess my question is, I mean, you and I are kind of in this, are, are in the same age group, baby boomer. Um, why write a book? Why now? This is your first attempt. Well, <laughs> you know, I, I, I've been writing short stories since the early 80s, and I just put them in a drawer when I was finished. You know, I really didn't have any, um, I, I didn't have any plans for, for, for uh, my writing. I, I, I just wrote all, I've written all my life. I've written my impressions, poetry, but as I said, in the early 80s, I started actually writing short story form, and um, I would just put them in drawers, and for about 30 years, uh, they sat in drawers, and I just kept writing, and uh, a friend of mine was um, recovering from a surgery that she had, and she was getting bored, and she said, do you have anything for me to read? And I said, well, I actually do have a story about my uh, bout with illness, and uh, I pulled it out of a drawer, and I gave it to her, and she was so encouraging to me. She kept saying, well, do you have any more? Do you have any more? And I ended up giving her all my stories, and she said, you know, I think you have a book here. And uh, I looked at, re-examined them and re-edited them, and then I started writing this narrative throughout the, uh, that connected all the short stories together. Why do you think, I mean, it was, it was she that you shared the stories with. I mean, it sounds like that was the first time you had shared the stories. Yeah. She was ill. You were obviously, I guess, I mean, you're empathizing with her. There must have been something in your writing that you felt would be helpful to her. Well, I, I, I had written a story about my bout with Epstein-Barr virus and my, my um, breast implant, uh, breast implants and removal of those breast implants, how they, they made me sick and they created this autoimmune problem in me. And I felt that if she read something, you know, that kind of, you know, made her not feel so alone... Uh, it might may, it might help her, and and it did. I mean, she was she was very happy that I went through all of that. I think, <laughs> but um, uh, it did help her, and and it helped me too because she gave me a, a, an idea for a book, and um, I just never had really I, I've never I'd never thought of that, and uh, when I wrote this narrative that connected all these stories. I felt like I had something, and so that's what made me go on. Yeah, so in, I guess in, in trying to help her, she obviously helped you. Yes, and, she did. Yeah, you know, propelled you to do this, because this is, I mean, I love the book, because, I mean, I, each one of the stories has to do with the power that women possess, and, and um, maybe we should talk about it maybe one or two of the stories individually as an example of, of, uh, of the memoirs. Well, um, the the memoir section of the book is this narrative that I wrote that connects all these stories. There are three nonfiction stories, and the rest are fiction. So um, my imagination is uh, all over the place in this in this book. And uh, there is a story um, that uh, I think that most of the women in this book have reached a point in their lives that. Um, their life isn't working for them anymore. 
it was working for them, and they had built their whole life around those ideas and those feelings, but now they their life doesn't work for them anymore. They're not happy, and they don't know why, and they don't know what to do about it, and it scares them because they're in relationships, and they're reexamining every part of their life now because they're not happy. And I, I think it's about women who get lost and um, who have to redefine who they are. Don't you think that for most of us and for most women that there's always some point at which we feel lost? Maybe it's more exaggerated or it's more difficult for some women than others. But, you know, if you live long enough, there's always a point at which you feel like, well, I have to make a change or, yeah, uh, yeah and how am I going to do this or will I have the strength to do it? Yeah, and, and, li- and life is all about change. I mean, you know, when you think about yourself when you were in your 20s, you're not that person anymore. And if you're married and you're, you have a relationship that is deep and meaningful, you're both going to change within that relationship. And if you don't grow together, and you, you, know, you can easily grow apart. And so a lot of these women are faced with that. You know, do I want to continue this relationship just because I, I was... It was working for me. How do I, how, what do I do now? I mean, how, how should I maneuver my way around my life now to try to get to my own happiness? What does that mean I'm going to lose? What am I faced with? And that's what these women are faced with. And what about you, you your relationship? I mean, you have been together for a long, long time with your husband. Um, we're we're going to be celebrating our 40th wedding anniversary on Sunday. Well, congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> That's exciting. And two exciting people, to, I mean, two people, successful people. I mean, you talk about changing and evolving. Um, what a, I mean, your, 40 years is a long time. Yes. So if you're different now, I'm assuming that he's different now yes. and that you've evolved together. Yes. So how has that worked for you, for both of you? Well, one, one thing that I've always recognized in our relationship is that when either of us are going through some kind of growth spurt or change, um, we both seem to go through it at the same time. Not, we don't seem to go, go in the same direction at the same time, but we're going through something at the same time, and we can relate to it. Um, we, can, we, we talk about it, we listen to each other, and... We, you know, we work it out. I mean, if, if, if we're in disagreement, we'll be in disagreement. We'll agree to disagree and, uh, until, it, in, until we can reach some kind of common ground, and then our hearts will open again. You well, know? Lonnie, did ever, what, when you talk about it, I guess, what would be some of the it's, like those, the points at where we're going through it, and we're going to work it out, we're going to talk it through, and then we'll go on, and... We well, I mean, you know, for one thing, when I when I got Epstein Barr virus, I mean, you know, was my, that a result of the breast implants? Yeah, I think so. I think it was because at the time that I had them, there was all this controversy going on about women and autoimmune dysfunction, and they were all, you know, there, there were a lot of lawsuits for Dow Corning. Uh, in the 80s and 90s, and there probably still are. I haven't really followed it since then, but um, that's what made me turn around and say, I I think I need to get these out of me because, uh, well, I never really related to them much anyway, but... Well, I was going to go back and ask you, why did you get them in the first place? You know, I'll tell you, Catherine, it was, you know, when I think back on this, 
it was it was a mindless decision. I just thought that uh, people were doing it, and I thought, you know, I had little breasts, and I thought that they were, you know, maybe my costumes would look better on me when I'm singing. I, I don't even know what I was thinking, but I did this. I walked right into an uh, a uh, operating room and did an elective surgery that hurt me, you know, without thinking about it too much, without researching it enough, without... Uh, I, I just, I, it was a mindless decision on my part, and uh, I just went in and I did it, and I thought, okay, this will be fun, yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and it was a, uh, was it, it was a disaster from a, the beginning? I mean, let's say if you hadn't gotten Epstein-Barr, I mean, like you say, you got it because you thought you would look better, and when you were singing, you would, you know, your costumes mm-hmm. would fit better. What about... Herb, what did he think? You know, he was never, he didn't want me to get them. He said, you know, I don't think, I don't think this is a good idea. And I, oh, no, it's okay. You know, I mean, it was this, <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know who I was then. But it just, I just wanted to do it. And I thought it would, uh, I, I don't know if I thought it would bring some type of uh, confidence to me or, um um, I, I don't know. I don't know what I was thinking. I, I, I wasn't thinking. I know that. And so um, I did it, and uh, about, I would say, I mean, just the, the entire time that I had them in, which, is, which was about eight years altogether, I wasn't feeling well, and I just didn't attach it to the breast implants until this controversy started, and I started hearing about these women that were starting to, you know, lose their health. I'm just so curious because here you were, here you are, still are, but were, you know, very sick, and I go back to this, seemingly, you know, you are successful, you're doing what you want to do, and following your passions, and all this kind of stuff, and then you have these implants in, put in, you're not mm-hmm. feeling well, you don't relate it to those, but did you feel better about yourself? Like, now I have big Absolutely breasts? Absolutely not. No. Absolutely not. I didn't dress differently. I thought I would dress more seductively or something would happen. Something, some different. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't, I didn't recognize the image that I had. You know, when I, when I would pass a mirror, I would turn, and, turn my head and I didn't see that image as me. It was like I was um, wearing these implants or, you know, or they were wearing me. You know, I yeah. mean, it, it, was, uh, it was very strange, and I never, I never uh, bonded with them. So they were always physically and emotionally like, not part of who you are, part of your psyche? Or... They, were not, they were not part of me. They were, they were these plastic things sitting on my chest. That's what they were. And that's what they felt like, and that's what they looked like to me. Um, but, uh, I, I kept them for eight years and, uh, finally, um, for about the last six months, uh, that's when all this controversy started and, uh, I just went to my, my doctor and he told me, no, no, these are hysterical women, you know, <laughs> and wait until there's this moratorium is up and, and finally I, I, I asked myself what I should do is what I did. I finally asked myself, 
Should I get these things out? And the, my inner voice said, absolutely. And that's when I called the doctor and I said, I don't really care what the moratorium uh, suggests. I, I want these out. And then once you did it and they were out, was it instant you felt better? Yes. Yeah. I, I, um, I physically, uh, you know, I had, I, had, I had Epstein-Barr virus, so I didn't, it wasn't like this miraculous moment that I jumped up <laughs> off the table. Hooray. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, started screaming hallelujah. But, I mean, um, I, I think that uh, once I got them out, I felt more myself. I felt that I connected more to who I am. And uh, that alone made me feel better. And then I had to recover. You know, I had to recover from, from this uh, virus that I had. I mean, that's quite a story. And I, I think, it, well, it's so relevant today because I see, and, in, in, um, well, as a social worker, but as a therapist, I mean, some of these young girls at age 16 or 18 years yeah. old who are getting these breast implants. Now, I don't know the rap is that they're better for them and, you know, that they've been improved upon and all of that, but, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah, I don't know. I, I just think that, you know, uh, as people, you know, we, we have to go through, we have to accept the consequences for our, you know, for our decisions. And, and sometimes, you know, they're not, they're not what we hoped they would be. And uh, I think... I think that these putting something foreign in your body is not something that I would choose to do. Yeah. yeah. Well, in this case, it wasn't irrevocable. You could change that. I mean, you're talking about reaching certain... Well, this is the example of reaching a certain point in your life where you had to make a change, but you yeah. made the change. Many mm-hmm. women don't make the change for whatever reason. They mm-hmm. just keep they on... They can't do it, yeah. They can't do it. Yeah. And they just continue to do what they've always done, and it still doesn't work, but they can't make that change. Yeah, it's um, too scary. And, it's, and, and a lot of women in the, in the stories, it's just too scary. They just, they really don't know what to do. I mean, for example, there's a, there's a story about, in my opinion, it, you know, it's, it's, it's about postpartum depression, but you don't know that until you reach the end of the story. But this woman is, is, is in her house having an argument with her husband, and she turns around, she walks out, she goes into the garage, she gets in her car, and she leaves. And she's got a, you know, she, her husband thinks that she was just taking a, a break, and she leaves. And, and, and I had seen uh, an interview on television of a woman that did that, and that's what gave me the idea to write a story like that. I was so intrigued by, oh my goodness, what happened to her? What did she do? She didn't tell her husband where she was going. She didn't say anything. She just disappeared. And, uh, and so my imagination took hold, and, and, uh, it, and, it, and it took her somewhere. And, and I think a lot of women, you know, reach a point where it's either a breaking point like that would be, you know, i, I got to get out of here, and she just jumps in her car and leaves, or, you know, or I have to confront this, or I, or I'll go numb and I won't do anything. Yeah, I think that's a good example. And I said, well, postpartum depression is one of those things that very often gets dismissed, not only by yeah. your partner or your husband or the physicians or whoever yeah. it is who's yeah, as uh, something that will go away that really isn't a problem. And then you yeah. know, it's, it's very real. Yeah, it is very real. Very real, and it really needs to be addressed. You're in a lot of trouble when you when you're in that. That, that place. And, and uh, 
you know, and this woman in, in the story, you know, knows that she must face her husband and talk about the loss of their child because that's what happened to, to her in her particular uh, in her particular case. But to get the courage up to really face something that's so painful, and 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 to hope that you're not going to be judged or um, uh, start start a whole situation that is so unpleasant or that you might lose the person that's on the other side of you. It's, it takes a lot of courage to turn around and do, okay, well, I'm willing to do anything I can to change this and, uh, and take a risk. Yeah. Do, do you think, Lonnie, that men, when they're faced with, with changes, um, kind of respond in the same way, or is it different for them? I don't know. I think, women. I think that women really feel um, the need to uh, communicate verbally. And I, I think that men have a harder time with that. I think that you know you 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 have to um, you have to work at it and kind of move into that arena to feel, to start feeling comfortable with talking about feelings. So um, I think it's easier for women. That's my experience, anyway. Well, maybe it's related to your title, emotional memoirs. Mm-hmm. The word emotional, I guess. Yeah. When I think of emotional, I think of women, not that men aren't emotional, but yeah. that seems to be kind of the overriding description of the, you know, of the memoirs, emotional memoirs. Yeah, um, it is an emotional memoir. It, it isn't your, you know, uh, the regular, uh, a regular memoir. I mean, it, it is a emotional impression. Even my impressions of Chicago as a young girl growing up there are more um, uh, in the emotional realm than the um, concrete, you know, than the, uh, it, 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 I, I write about the light in Chicago. I write about the, uh, the buildings and what they represented to me and uh, the, the, the strength that I gathered from them growing up in a, in a um, volatile household. And so I, I, I write about the city in an emotional way as well, as well as the, uh, the stories. Yeah, and it really does come across. I've spent, I have a lot of family, including a son in Chicago, and I've spent a lot of time ever since I was a young girl in Chicago. But the way you describe the scenes and the feels and the smells, it really, I mean, it made me, I just brought back a lot of memories. I, didn't you say you got on a, on the L and you just went through the different communities mm-hmm. and, yeah. yeah, in the summertime and yeah. watching, Did you do that? yeah, I like that description. But Did then you do you, that? Yeah. Did you get on the L and go through through those neighborhoods too? I yeah, I definitely yes, I did. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 really an education. It is an education. It is. Yeah. You were also saying that well, you were in therapy for ten years. Was it was it during that period of time that you were in therapy in Chicago? Uh, there's one piece in the book. I, I'm now, maybe I'm confusing it with one of your characters. Oh but, no no no! I've been I've been in therapy all my life. I okay. Mean, I, that, 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 but that, there is one story in my book uh, called Standing Appointment that is about bad therapy and, and uh, how dangerous it is to, um, uh, to, to give your trust and your faith to someone you don't really know. And in this story, it, it shows that uh, the, 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 the doctor 
was much sicker than the patient, and uh, she just didn't know it. And and it's it's uh, it's it's an interesting story built all around dreams, dream states, and uh, um, and with my experience with therapists, um, I uh, I have had bad therapists and I've had good therapists, and the bad therapists, I, you know, unfortunately, I was innocent and didn't realize what was going on here, and. Uh, um, it took a, a, a while for me to, to realize that this person was <laughs> needed help. Ne- needed more help than you needed. Yeah. But it's, it, that's, not, that's very difficult to extricate yourself from that kind of a, a situation. And, and I just had somebody, a friend of mine, whose uh, uh, daughter is in that position. And, uh. is it, and, and how does she get out of it? Or how do you pick another therapist and not get yourself in the same situation with somebody? Because she's fairly young, um, not... Yeah. Yeah, it's very. T- how old is she? Early twenties. Yeah, that's very tough. It uh-huh. is tough because you haven't really, you haven't really settled into yourself yet enough to trust yourself, especially if you're going to a therapy. I mean, that's why I went to therapy. I mean, I didn't trust myself enough to ask myself, uh, you know, the questions that I was asking a therapist. I didn't trust myself, my answers enough, and um, it was. You know, I mean, in a way, it's good because you you're forced to look at, uh, like, an, like I said before, about decisions that you make and the consequences of them. I mean, that you give your faith and your trust to this person, and they don't deserve it. Yeah, well, and you do that. I mean, I think particularly maybe with, I'm getting back to the gender thing, but I think with women and the issue with authority figures and, you know, here you are and you're obviously you're vulnerable, you're going into therapy, but like trusting authority figures and being, and I think that's, that is an issue that. And and therapists, I, I mean, you know, they, if they're not, if they're not that good, they're not going to be thinking about transference and, and what that means, you know, how important that is to these patients. And, and uh, uh, in, in this story, it's, um, it, really, it really shows um, how fragile uh, people are. And it doesn't take much to just push them over the edge. Mm-hmm. And, and, and what, what encouragement and what um, criticism the differences can do to a fragile psyche. Well, your stories are very sensitive. I was going to say raw, too, but there's that, there is that kind of lyrical sensitivity. And, uh, of course, I think, you know, as a woman, I identify with many of those stories in your own memoir, but... Um, I want to, we only have a couple minutes left, so I, I, I want to make sure that, uh, I know you have a website? I do, LonnieHall.com. That's easy. <laughs> <laughs> That's not going to take too long. LonnieHall, yeah, okay, .com, Emotional Memoirs and Short Stories. And it's also on Amazon.com. Okay. And, and when's your next book? Well, I'm actually working on something right now, and I'm I'm really not sure what it's turning into yet. But um, <laughs> I'm uh, I'm I'm just gonna see what what develops here. It's organic. It's evolving. Yes. 
It's organic. It's evolving. And and I write the way I sing. You know, I I've always been very visual with lyrics, and so I I can actually see the story of a lyric unfolding. And it's the same with with writing. I I write, and I can actually watch it like I'm watching a movie. What's where it's going? And so um, I never know <laughs> where it's going. <laughs> So we'll just have to kind of tune in as it goes or wait for the next story, right? Yes. That's exciting. Well, right now it's all nonfiction. So I'm 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 thinking that it's probably going to be that way. It's about 80. I've got about 80 pages right now. So you're not going to change that nonfiction. I think all of that is nonfiction, so I, I don't know where it's going, though, but, you know, we'll see. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, you've been great. I've really enjoyed talking to you on the show today. I've enjoyed my yeah, time, too. Is, thank you, Catherine. Thank you. Lonnie Hall Albert, and the title of her book is Emotional Memoirs and Short Stories, and uh, you can go to her website, as we mentioned before, and you can buy the book online at bookstores everywhere. So. We are going to say goodbye. I'm Catherine Zox. I'm your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Have a great week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network. It's staff and management.